Hey everyone, we're doing something a little different today. Uh, we had something else planned for today, but then of course the Supreme Court decision was leaked, which if finalized would overturn Roe v. Wade and KCV Planned Parenthood, making the already very inaccessible and expensive right to an abortion in the United States no longer stand. Um, there is a lot to say about this. Most importantly, I think that this is an urgent time to put political and social pressure against the court. But for our part, we thought the best sort of discursive role we could play here is in unlocking a conversation we actually had about this exact case back nice. in December. Um, so Phil and I are here. Hello. Bees out sick today. Phil and I are here to give some sort of context for that episode and set it up. Uh, and after our brief chat here, what you're going to hear in the rest of the episode is a conversation we had with friend of the panel, Abby Cardis, where we did a deep dive on the oral arguments presented in this case, Dobbs v. Jackson. Yeah. And I, and for those of you who might be ready to turn off the podcast now, because <laughs> you might think that by listening to the oral arguments is somehow giving uh, credence to any legit, the court having any sort of legitimacy or the idea that arguments in this case really matter. Matter, or that like what's really going on here is some sort of like debate about ideas. None right, of that not just is, a naked exercise of political power. Yeah. None of that is the case. And I think none of that is really the case in, in our conversation with Abby. I think what the conversation sort of illustrates and going back and looking at it is just one, the extent to which there is this knowing kind of capacity within the courts. Like it's everybody sort of knows and it's what the outcome is going to be. And it's just very obvious that, that the oral argument is just sort of like a mere formality and like a patina, uh, you know, to, to cover the, the, the court's like naked illegitimacy. But I think the other thing that I, we sort of get to is the way in which this, this particular case, the court's hearing of it, illustrates this like much broader pattern in the assault on the right to health care uh, in the United States and exactly what that's going to look like and what political action might mean in a, a post row country. So I, I think we, we get to a lot of that, uh, in the conversation. So it is listening and don't worry, it will not be about logic <laughs> or argumentation. <laughs> right. Well, in fact, too, I think importantly, a lot of the, you know, I think actually one of the big values of this episode is in some of the clips we bring in for example there are like several clips of uh the oral arguments themselves and i think situating exactly how really absurd a lot of the argumentation is and how again this is about an exercise of power this is finding a justification for the thing that they want to do but as you know as as we'll get into i think the other thing this really makes me reflect on is i think obviously in the last few days since this draft decision was leaked a lot of the uh sort of mainstream democrat response has been oh well this uh galvanizes and and gears us up for the midterms in a very crass uh response to this and please I think call what, now with your donation <laughs> <laughs> right exactly and i think what is interesting to me that i think it's a little subtle but you'll probably you'll hear it as we sort of get into the specifics of the case is how quickly people, I think, seemingly forgot the fact that this was, I mean, this is a conversation we had in December, 
there were around this time when these oral arguments happened, there were media accounts, I think, accurately saying it appears that Roe is dead. There was, you know, there was there was a lot of, you know, righteous outrage about that and consternation. And I think that a lot of that sort of dropped out of the picture. So I think that, again, you know, this is it's I think it's very significant that this leaked. And I think it's important that like this be used as a point of political leverage in the in the moment, not as some crass like electoral game or something. And it's I think, you know, my only maybe mistake in in uh, the only thing I was, I think, wrong about in this conversation we have with Abby is I I sort of this is sort of unexpected to me. I, you know, kind of had a suspicion that like they would do it, but in a way that wouldn't have the potential to to maybe galvanize uh, maybe as much response, but the, the real question is like how, w- whether or not this moment is sort of used as a way of saying, okay, you know, what exactly should the reaction be when such an illegitimate, uh, counter majoritarian like action, uh, is taken. And so I'm happy that we're not in a way talking about what seems to be the story that is being covered. It's like who leaked it and, uh, why like, <laughs> how what are the different they? theories? And I could not give a shit about that Absolutely. or what it means, because I think regardless of who leaked it or what the, you know, particular, uh, story there is like, it's obvious that Roe is dead. And the only question now is, you know, what is going to, you know, what is the political pathway uh, to fighting this uh, at every turn. And, you know, that's that's the only sort of relevant uh, question. And I think that actually the conversation we, we have with Abby uh, kind of gets to that. Yeah, absolutely. Also, just I think on that note about the leak, you know, if if already there isn't, you know, like a key logger on every single Supreme Court computer, I think, uh, you know, now now's the time for that. <laughs> but anyway, um, we... Hope you all enjoy this. Once again, I promise this is unfortunately just as salient today, having the draft decision in hand as it was when we first recorded it. If you do appreciate this unlock or just want to support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. We do two shows a week, one for patrons only and one free one that shows up in the podcast feed you're hearing this in right now. Patrons, we'll see you on Monday with a brand new episode. And for everyone else, we'll catch you later next week. Welcome to the Daft Panel. Patrons, thank you so much, as always, for supporting the show and our work. We couldn't do any of this without you. Don't forget you can use code for a discount in the merch store. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. Well, folks, Abby Cardis is back. Abby, welcome back to the show. It's always a pleasure to have you. Howdy. And uh, similar to what we did on our episode with Abby on the Texas abortion bill SB8 or die, which we just unlocked, um, we're going to talk about abortion access again today via the other Supreme Court case this term dealing with abortion, Dobbs v. Jackson 
women's health. <laughs> so uh, last week, oral arguments took place in this case, which is resoundingly anticipated to lead to a formal overturning of Roe versus Wade. Not that it's like a particularly helpful legal precedent at the moment, because as we've talked about, and I'm sure we'll talk about again today, functionally, many pregnant people in this country have zero abortion access. And these oral arguments, much like the last one, are a huge fucking shit show, though it's like a different flavor than the Texas case. So we're going to go through what's actually being argued here, what the profound consequences will be. So let's start with some context. We have a lot of listeners all over the world, not just the United States. So I just want to make sure that we don't leave anyone out of this. Um, So this case, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization is about a law enacted by the Mississippi State Legislature in 2018 called the Gestational Age Act, which has never actually gone into effect. In SB8 or Die, we talked at length about why Texas's law, SB8, is different and unlike all the other draconian abortion bans, was able to go into effect and avoid something called pre-enforcement review. So the Gestational Age Act is very different. And I just want to make sure that's clear for anyone that's listened to the first episode. (laughs) It's never gone into effect, uh, even though it was passed and signed by the governor uh, of Mississippi in 2018. It's a more traditional challenge to abortion rights. Something more like what we're used to. (laughs) Yeah, the original original edition. Yeah. Yeah. This is like what states have been doing for years or trying to do for years, which is just like further and further curb access to abortions under like the existing law. So like the idea is like if we can't get Roe, you know, thrown out, uh, we're going to just do as much as we can and like throw, you know, spaghetti at a wall and like see what sticks. And like, I, you know, in, in past years, it would have been somewhat more of a reach. But like they explicitly said, like they're, they're like quotes of the legislators like, well, now we've got the court like where right. we want it. It doesn't matter that they've just thrown out laws that looked exactly like this, like in the mm-hmm. last year. <laughs> we've got them essentially where we want them. And so now we're going to pass the uh, uh, aptly titled Gestational Age Act. God. It seems pretty clear, like as you're saying, they're not hiding the fact that like one of the reasons that they have gone so far uh, in this case as to have, you know, the the people arguing in favor of the Mississippi law to say really explicitly, like the court should overturn Roe v. Wade and Casey um, straight up, straight up in as the takeaway of this still their kind of like minimum thing that they're asking for is like, oh, well, what if we just like restrict it to like 15 weeks for abortion? Like, despite the fact that obviously uh, before Roe v. Wade was decided, you know, there were laws on the book, some of which were like remain, which are basically right there for like last time we talked about how there are, for instance, in 12 states trigger laws Mm -hmm. that would go into effect the moment that Roe v. Wade was formally overturned. Right. So that Mm -hmm. like uh, states would just suddenly as a sort of an immediate reaction to Roe v. Wade being formally overturned, new restrictions would come into place. But there are also other states where just like and some of those trigger states included where just like prior to 1973, when Roe was decided, they just never changed the law. They just said like, OK, we'll go along with this, you know, what I mean? or like we have to go along with this to some degree. And then just, of course, proceeded to limit abortions in a whole other slew of ways, making it so that, you know, Roe, as we mentioned, as we've mentioned a bunch of times before, despite the fact that a lot of the main sort of like liberal talking points over it are that it really does defend constitutionally the right 
uh, of anyone to get an abortion. There are just all these barriers that make it so that functionally so many people in this country are just not able to get one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it seems to me the goal here or the approach that like the state of Mississippi is taking is a little bit two pronged. Right. So, you know, Roe is is kind of the prevailing standard. But when it comes down to it, Casey is really the prevailing standard. But it seems like Mississippi's approach is trying to attack sort of the key elements of both the Roe and Casey decisions. So it seems like there was a lot of argument over sort of the the viability standard, which is one of the core elements of of Roe v. Wade Um, viability. I mean, just to to briefly recap, Roe v. Wade said that states can regulate abortion only after fetal viability. So abortion has to be legal before, you know, a a fetus is old enough, you know, or developed (laughs) enough to survive outside the uterine environment, which is typically, you know, 22 to 24 weeks And then Casey, which the Casey decision said that it was consonant with Roe v. Wade for states to regulate abortion prior to viability, as long as such regulation doesn't place a quote unquote undue burden on the person seeking an abortion. And it seems that Mississippi's approach or the, the element of Casey that they are challenging is kind of saying, well, the viability standard doesn't make any sense. And in fact, the Constitution doesn't name, you know, reproductive freedoms. And so this actually isn't a constitutional right. And states, <laughs> legislatures, right. whatever, should just be able to decide to, to regulate abortion however they want. Yeah, right. that's right. They're, they're essentially, I mean, the thing that Casey seemed, you know, really did was it, it abandoned that initial framework that Rose set up and, and it enacted one that was, I think, more, it, it gave states more leeway in terms of their ability to, you know, infringe on uh, the right to abortion. And then it also said that, like, states didn't have to meet the highest standard of scrutiny. They just, like, mm-hmm. had to demonstrate, like, a compelling interest, which is why you get all of these states doing things like, well, you know, all, all we're doing is just trying to, like, protect women's health. Um, yeah. Which is obviously patently untrue. But, like, the, the Supreme Court, like, gave them an open invitation to do that in, 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 in Casey. And so now what they're saying is, like, oh, yeah, that open invitation, that standard, the, the Mississippi the Mississippi, uh, you know, AG is like saying two things. It seems like, and I think this is what you're saying, Abby, is like mm-hmm. one that Roe was just completely like that. There was no constitutional foundation for Roe at all. But mm-hmm. even if you find that there was one, that like the standard that Casey set up of viability being the 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 cut point for when states are allowed to like intervene uh, is like an unworkable standard because. Um, it's like changing, it's, it's mutating and like, and, you, and, and judges have to do things on such like a case by case basis. They're basically making the argument that like, uh, you, you know, things are like, uh, so hard for judges to like actually do all of this, like, uh, you know, adjudication, uh, that even if you find that things are like upheld under row, the intermediate position is like, well, uh, you need a new standard. But the thing that they've done to rig it in favor of getting rid of Roe is that their intermediate position also makes no sense. They don't articulate an alternative <laughs> to viability. So it's like, well, then you have to almost like default back to the idea that there's nothing constitutional about Roe. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, Roe and Casey are kind of intertwined as a legal precedent. You can't challenge one without challenging the other because one of the two things that Casey did was reaffirm Roe and prove pretty much to one of the highest legal standards that that we um, have seen in an abortion case 
prove basically the validity of Roe. So the the whole legal challenge is really posturing, right? Like, I, I don't yeah. think that this is, I think it's important to emphasize it's not a necessarily new strategy that they've like suddenly decided to go after Casey. They've been told if you want to go after Roe, you have to go after Casey, right? Mm-hmm. And the idea was that Casey was supposed to be so ironclad that it would sort of future-proof abortion rights. Right. And that's definitely proved to be false. It doesn't really excuse the fact that the that like Congress failed to act to like codify this into law in any way, right? So it keeps it in the realm of the courts. And like just to roll back to like the very beginning of what you were saying, Abby, you were like, I don't know much about jurisprudence, but but like that's part of the how they get you, right? Because by <laughs> right. keeping this stuff in the realm of like the courts and refusing to say, no, abortion is healthcare. We need to like ensure access to this, like we ensure access to all healthcare through like legal sort frameworks. Yeah. Right. You know, I mean, or yeah, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> like it's it's relegated to the the domain of discourse, of like national conversations, and most importantly, this legalistic. arena right which is very privileged as to who can speak on it who feels like they intellectually have access to it and who is recognized to speak on it by the body that's actually making the decision right because like you know you or i can't go into the supreme court and listen to them and speak up and ask questions or say anything we would be arrested right yeah and i really i think you're getting at something that's really important here which is there is kind of a narrative that is being or that has, I think, always been advanced by kind of the reproductive rights, the mainstream sort of like reproductive rights pro-choice movement in the U.S., which is like, you know, we won't go back, right? Like we got Roe, right? we're not going to go back. But I think what, what you're getting at, B, is the real like precarity of reproductive freedom as a right. Right. And I think that the strategy of kind of the mainstream there's, we could probably do a whole podcast episode about like how we got here from the movement side and like the, the approach that sort of the pro-choice movement, like the pro-choice lobby has taken over the past, you know, 25, 30 years that have kind of brought us to this point. But and ironically, that episode would sound exactly like the episode where we critiqued the liberal rights framework that led to the Americans with Disabilities Act. Right. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, you know, this is, this is like, I think together. you're absolutely right. Yeah. 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 So it's, I think there's this narrative that is pretty firmly entrenched among the interlocutors that participate in this discourse, which tend to be, you know, middle-aged white women. <laughs> Um, that, you know, this is just going to set us back unbelievably. But the anti-abortion movement has been sort of clawing us back. Like, I don't think that Roe was ever sort of like the beachhead that we're sort of acting like it was. It did not codify this this right so strongly that it was invulnerable to challenges, obviously. I think it's becoming pretty clear that perhaps situating abortion outside of the realm of regular health care and talking about it as a choice. I don't know that it's worked and I don't know that this like strategy of trying to. Well, no, it, ha- it, it hasn't worked. Decidedly, it has not worked. And I think, you know, what we talked about last time as being unique about the Texas law SB8 was that it was designed 
specifically to avoid the legislative pathway that this gestational, God, the name is hilarious, Gestational Age Act um, and other similar abortion bans have um, found themselves in, which is in this you know, issue of pre-enforcement review. And so what it's also done, you know, in addition to like not giving people access to this conversation, really relegating it to a like a class issue and keeping it like within this very gatekept realm of expertise and not really providing any comprehensive rights meaningfully, you know, what it what it's done too is that, you know, <laughs> it's created this game where like getting rid of abortion rights in America is about finding the right gotcha. Yeah. Legally speaking. And that's and that's a draining strategy. That's a counterinsurgent strategy to completely drain your opponents of resources. And there are a lot more coordinated resources on the side of the Christian right than there are on any other of the sides of the issues that they mm-hmm. frequently do this to. That That is the sort of feeling that I got listening to these oral arguments, because from the very beginning, it was it's so clear. They're like, you know, there are two things that you could do. There's essentially, there's two things the court could do here. Right. One, they could go the sort of uh, the, the path that they've been on, which is like chipping away <laughs> at uh, abortion rights and right. like you know, what, what's the consequence of that? Like, it's it's a news story, but maybe it's not a news story for that long. It's not like this epical sort of moment. But from the very first sentence of the oral argument being made by Mississippi's attorney general, it's like, <laughs> you, you know, rose on, you know, rose on the docket, uh, cases on the docket. These things have like poisoned our law and they've got to yeah. be back. Basically, the whole oral argument, he's inviting the conservative justices to see themselves in the same way that the Warren court saw itself in like Brown v. Board. He's like, he's inviting them to like step into this role as like historical figures and like yeah. the mass championing is- <laughs> it as like some civil rights issue or some right. shit. Yeah. And they're, and they're being very blunt. And that's why the coverage I think was like quite correct to say like Rose, like dead. It's like, they're being very blunt about how they feel about these things in their responses to him. And I think to me, like what I what I was like, this is interesting in a way because, you know, I guess you might think uh, the court would try to do things that would like avoid a huge backlash to its decision. <laughs> and but like, <laughs> but perhaps not. Right. Uh, that That's like the, the le- legal commentators on this are like, wow, um, you know, the court does, you know, it's like going to like invite all this backlash. But like there's a couple things to consider is like one is the court has like created a legal regime around itself like the guy who was the ag who's uh defending the mississippi law he used to clerk for thomas right everybody like knows everybody else because they all go to like federalist society events and like only those events um and the other thing is like they're part of a political fucking regime where what does the court do what is the function of the court it's to disenfranchise and criminalize like the working class in every way possible at the ballot box, like in terms of unions and now in terms of like reproductive uh, rights and like the right to health care. And like they will and they now see that they have an ability to do that. And there's essentially nothing that anyone is going to be they that their perception is nothing is going to be able to be done about this. No one is really going to be able to uh, hit us on this. Democrats can't seem to even get it together for like a mild court reform bill. Um no one seems to like like they're not worried about anything. So obviously it's going to be like like the, the tenor of the whole thing is so it's so obvious that they know 
they can do whatever they want now. Absolutely. And, oh, well, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. And of course, because I mean, and I think that makes it make a lot of sense uh, why. And as I think we'll have to I think it's really important actually to get into later how preoccupied, especially the sort of like more liberal justices or whatever <laughs> are with the conversation of the legitimacy of the court and. <laughs> You know, maintaining maintaining this sort of fictive, (laughs) non-political stance. Although, to be to be frank, actually, again, we'll we'll talk about this. uh, I think in in a minute, but because there's interesting examples of both of these. But interestingly, that is kind of I think you kind of see that on sort of both sides of the court. There are sort of both of these are a lot of the a lot of the actions that are happening here and playing out within the dynamics of this case. This oral argument is actually like a really interesting, dramatic representation of the two different ways that like the quote unquote non-political status of the court is wielded by these sides. But I did want to really quickly, since you mentioned, Phil, the um, how how right off the bat, the arguments start with this just. I don't know, Baroque uh, <laughs> explanation of what the uh, undergraduate the, debate club. Yeah, yeah, like literally by the first the end of the first sentence, it's like a shit show. Right. Well, so um, I just this is literally how the oral arguments open. It's um, this is you're going to hear. I'm going to play a clip of Scott Stewart, who's arguing on behalf of Mississippi, um, how he frames Roe and the and I will say that this, as you're saying, Phil, the terms of this debate basically get kind of carried forward, frankly, by... Oh, yeah, and the they're totally justices. set by Stewart, too. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey haunt our country. They have no basis in the Constitution. They have no home in our history or traditions. They've damaged the democratic process. They've poisoned the law. They've choked off compromise. For 50 years, they've kept this court at the center of a political battle that it can never resolve. And 50 years on, they stand alone. Nowhere else does this court recognize a right to end a human life. Rowan Casey's core holding is that the people can protect an unborn girl's life when she just barely can survive outside the womb, but not any earlier when she needs a little more help. <laughs> yeah, how rude of the Supreme Court for its own decisions to put it in this impossible position. Yeah. <laughs> like, fuck you. Well, and, you know, this is the thing, too, is that I, I think for a long time, it was thought that simply having a single court justice that has a back that has background on civil rights or anything like that was fine. You know, RBG was the only one who has any experience like doing anything on these issues, not to mention the fact that she was like ancient and only one person. But now that like that framework is completely gone, right? Yeah. Um, there is not a single person on the Supreme Court who has ever, ever done anything, legally speaking, that has to do with disability rights, that has to do with even civil rights of any kind. There's no one that has ever done criminal defense work. There's no one that's done really anything outside of like white collar work. There's no environmental work. There's no immigration work. So, you know, the the idea, right, that the issue of legitimacy here is whether or not the Supreme Court is going to strike down Rowan Casey versus the fact that the Supreme Court is a fundamentally illiberal fascist institution that is full also of people of rapists. Sorry. <laughs> right. Which yeah. is full of people with experience like doing law for like the upper class of the United States. Like how could they ever possibly have the expertise to have perspective, to make a bioethical decision about 
people's health care writ large, right? Like that should be the issue that is making their legitimacy in question, right? Not the fact that they could be perceived as being political, but the fact that we relegate these kinds of really important discourses and decisions to a group of unqualified legal authorities. I think there is a kind of an interesting parallel to a lot of what has been discussed on the show regarding COVID, right? Mm -hmm. These folks... Yeah, these Supreme Court justices don't have any expertise. And a lot of these arguments sort of against Roe, against Casey, really pivot on pseudoscience and and incorrect Mm -hmm. science, right? And incorrect understandings of fetal development, embryonic development. And I feel like after these two years of this pandemic that feels like it's never going to end... I feel like there is a much there is a big crisis of legitimacy going on (laughs) right now, but it's not like the Supreme Court's legitimacy is kind of dead last in terms of things I give a fuck about because (laughs) the entire legitimacy and, you know, I am not someone if, if you've heard my previous appearances on this podcast, I'm not someone who is like a cult of expertise person like I don't I don't revere experts, but, you know, it is not correct to say that uh, an embryo can feel pain before its nervous structures have developed. And yeah. yet that's, you know, that that's what's being asserted in these. Uh, how do you say it? Amicus briefs, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and before the court and before the, and court. Before the court and At the court does not know. I mean, do you do you think that Clarence Thomas like knows? I know he does <laughs> not. I know there is like yeah. no one on the Supreme Court who can like make a competent argument even as to why that's not true because they tried and it didn't quite pan out. Should I? Arguments. Yeah. So yeah, actually, Abby, exactly what you're talking about. I want to play that too, which is, I think, a really important moment because one of the things that Mississippi is also hinging its case on, which it seems like, it seems like pretty universally, like a lot of the claims made in Mississippi's sort of response brief were basically repeated and taken up in a bunch of the mouths of the conservative justices. I mean, I don't know if I'll play it. For example, there's Amy Coney Barrett brings up at some point in the arguments, like the question of like, oh, but adoption is like now such a more accessible option because <laughs> of like safe haven yeah, laws, which are something. Yeah. So we'll, well, I guess we'll talk about that later, but that's literally straight from the, the brief. And yeah. similarly, they also hinge on this, like, oh, there've been scientific developments <laughs> that show, which are the, the things that, Abby, you're calling out on as pseudoscience, which show that like it is cruel somehow to to, you know, perform an abortion before X or Y date. So let me just play this really quick. This is a clip of Scott Stewart uh, arguing with Sonia Sotomayor. And that carefully goes through the stare decisis factors we've laid out. No, it didn't. Casey went through every one of them. You think it did it wrong. That's your belief. But Casey did that. Well, and you haven't added sorry, much to the discussion in your papers as to the errors that Casey made um, other than I disagree with them, Casey. Just so I maybe I can, I can highlight two. Uh, Casey gave one paragraph to the workability of Roe. 
It then adopted the undue burden standard, which is perhaps the most unworkable standard in American law. It gave about three paragraphs, if memory serves, to reliance, which doesn't account for uh, the last 30 years and the changes that have occurred since Casey. Um, it, it, it gave a brief factual view to things that have changed <laughs> since Roe. Those, of course, uh, are not going to take account of the last 30 years of advancements in medicine, science, all of those hmm. things. What are the advancements in medicine? Dr. Oz? Like- <laughs> I think it's a, an advancement in, in knowledge and concern about such things as uh, fetal pain, what we know the child is doing and looks like and is fully human you know, from a very the early child. In, wow. in regular cases, courts decide whether science fits the Daubert standard. Obviously, the, under the Daubert standard, the minority of people, a gross minority of doctors, who believe fetal pain exists before 24, 25 weeks. It's a huge minority, and one not well-founded in science at all. So um, I don't see how that really adds anything to the discussion, that a small fringe of doctors believe that pain could be experienced before a cortex is formed does it mean that there's been that much of a difference since Casey? So I, worth noting, like she mentions the Daubert standard as if it's like saying that like courts will only recognize scientific opinions when there is a majority of like uh, consensus among scientists. But that's actually not what the Daubert standard is. It's actually just a real sort of set of criteria that is one of the qualifications but ultimately the decision is up to a judge whether or not they're going to allow expert witness (laughs) testimony to be considered like scientifically accurate information and so it's not necessarily the sort of gotcha that Sotomayor is playing it up as in this clip. I think the other thing too that's very clear uh, that you see in the discussion of the fetal pain issue, which like for the record, just checking Abby, like do fetuses feel pain before they've like developed uh, the spine, like the cerebrum and that sort of part of the brain? No, I mean, you know, I'm not an expert (laughs) about fetal development, but you have to have like you have to have a brain and a nervous system right? And, and, to, and to feel pain. I'm not trying to say that like the only version of pain is biomedical. Like pain is a like socially constructed and cultural phenomenon. It's not like purely biomedical. But what they are saying in this court is that, you know, the pain of the fetus in theory, the theoretical pain of the fetus trumps the, the very documented pain of pregnancy. Right. And whose pain is more important? And whose pain deserves priority, right, is also part of the conversation. And I think that that's something that, um, you know, we, we talk about this in terms of economic power and labor power and, you know, in these sort of financialized terms, in terms of like, you know, someone's embodied experience, right? Like the thing they are arguing over is that the fetus's pain, theoretical, the fetus's theoretical pain, right, should legally take priority over um, the person who's pregnant's pain. And that's, I think, a really important distinction. And, you know, one of the things that I, I think is kind of lost here, right, is that you, you, we really easily lose track of, like, the actual people's lives who are at the center of this because, we've you know, we get pulled so far away from the actual experience of pregnancy, right? Because there's no conversation about, you know, who's 
whose pain is more important, where they're ever going to compare the pain of childbirth to the potential theoretical pain that a fetus could feel, right, based on these pseudoscientific advancements that they're trying to present in court, because it would be really impossible to argue that theoretical pain trumps, like, real documented pain. But that's exactly also what they're arguing here, which I think is really, like, right. key and important. But the other, the other thing, I, I, just to throw a wrench in, I think, a little bit of what we've been saying is like, okay, so the, the normal critique I have of the Supreme court is like, who are these, who are these chuckleheads? Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. to, you know, it, like, why do we have judicial review? Like in, in a democracy, this is like counter majoritarian, but that I, the proponents of this Mississippi bill, that's exactly what their argument is. Like they're twisting that. And like, that's exactly what they're, they want judges to judicially enshrine this idea that because, okay, here's the thing. His response is like, oh yeah, it's quackery in a way. He doesn't say that, but it's like, he all, he almost like comes close to admitting like, yeah, the (laughs) fetal pain stuff, this is like quackery, but, but people are really up in arms about abortion. And so you (laughs) you can't like the most illegitimate (laughs) thing you could do is allow, uh, the, uh, the court to continue to like make pronouncements about this. Yeah, in other words, he's saying look, turning it to the people. All the exactly. Time. Yeah, his, his, yeah, his thing is like, are not actually that up in arms about abortion. Yeah, well, right. But his point is that like people already think the Supreme court is illegitimate and somehow like what the best thing to do, if that's the case is like, turn it back to the, he keeps saying the people, what he means is state legislatures. And yep. obviously yep, yep, it's yep. It, like it transparently clear to anyone who, like it reads the news at all is like, yeah, the straight state legislatures are anything but the fucking people. They yeah. in fact are uh, quite apart from them and are illegitimate, uh, pretty fundamentally, at least mine certainly is, uh, in Wisconsin. <laughs> uh, but like this, this whole, whole, like, um, like sleight of hand is like, Oh yeah, the people. Yeah. The fucking States are kind of definitionally not the people. Right. Yeah. And, and I think the other thing too, that's not being uh, discussed. I haven't really seen anywhere and we'll probably get into this a little bit later is that like these legal interpretations or like legal allowances as to what is going to be counted as like being like scientifically valid in the eyes of the court. It's like, you know, they allow stuff like fingerprinting and all sorts of bullshit that goes on with like criminal cases. Right. So it's mm-hmm. like, It really calls into question, I think, also both like how their legitimacy and authority is manufactured. Right. And I I think that, like, I totally understand their anxiety there because I think it looks bad for them. right? Right. Because it's basically like their defense is like, because I said so. And because the courts said so before we say so again. And I, I, I sort of see how that seems like a really good avenue for like contesting the, the legality of abortion. But I think it's really important to understand that like courts are not like a one directional thing that just receives arguments and passes judgment down when that judgment is passed. It shapes clinical practice. It shapes professional and lay understandings of like what is is even valid or real, right? Like you you have all of these things, like all these landmark court cases, which have had more influence over how we think of like the quality of life of disabled people than any testimony from a disabled person themselves. And downstream, there have been a lot of bioethicists who have done a lot of research showing that these court cases result in these legal frameworks being sort of thought of as 
where this stuff can live, right? And that it's not a topic for other people. And then those those sort of decisions that are made in that legal realm as they're reproduced, as they're produced throughout society and, the, and as they like leave the Supreme Court and go back into culture because they do go back into culture, yeah. right? Like there are impacts, right? There are dramatic legal cases that have dramatically changed the way that we think of like autonomy and human life and the value of human life, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, to to not acknowledge like the court's role in shaping like our cultural perceptions of things as well, I think is kind of terrifying. Right. Like it's like mm-hmm. almost as if like they're, they they think that the Supreme Court is like this black box that only takes in information. Well, it's and, part and of the is game. Not, right. It's, exactly. part, it's like part of its own projection of legitimacy. Right. right. I mean, that is and that that's like so readily on display right. throughout the commentary. I mean, there's the whole thing of like um, Sotomayor says something like, um, you know, what what would it mean to do to undo, you know, Roe v. Wade and Casey it would like put a, a stench on this court as though it were a political actor. If people actually believe that it's all political, how will we survive? How will the court survive? Or something. Right. God forbid the, the fact that <laughs> almost all of Breyer's comments are like preoccupied with the idea mm-hmm. that like, of course, the Supreme, like what me, what me, the Supreme Court, I'm just a little court. Ooh, you know what I mean? Like that's basically the <laughs> yeah, fucking, I'm a small bean. Right. I have anxiety. Just a small court. Also back to the idea that we talked about at the beginning at the top where uh, I think it was Abby, you were like, it's not like. Roe v. Wade really meaningfully even protected abortion at the time that it was decided. It's not like Roe v. Wade was necessarily like this huge watershed moment when it was decided in terms of abortion access, that it was really, you know, it's the idea that Roe v. Wade protects abortion is something that is culturally constructed. Like it has these these tales that go way, way longer than like anyone is willing to acknowledge in the form of the court, right? So they sit up there in their like marble palace acting as if like they don't influence things and they are apolitical and they are just this barren judicial body, you know, some sort of neutral arbiter without any acknowledgement or recognition of like, oh, you know, when we make a decision about like, for example, like a a uh, assisted suicide case, right? That actually brings the topic of assisted suicide to the public at large because of how the media covers it. And that shapes how bioethicists think of it. And that shapes how doctors think of it. And that inspires people to write legislation. And then it reproduces the idea that like disabled people have such poor quality of life that they should be, you know, euthanized rather than, oh, you know, we could just stand up social services properly. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's it's interesting that you say this because I think this is also reproduced by sort of the mainstream white feminist, you know, lobby, right? Like the pro-choice lobby over the past many years. And I think that part of the reason that we're in this predicament right now is the failure of that lobby to recognize the Supreme Court as a deeply political institution, right? I don't think that like, for example, abolish abortion Texas is necessarily bought into the idea that the Supreme Court is an apolitical body. But I think very much that the Democrats and sort of the, again, the mainstream like reproductive rights movement have, have really failed to understand why it's necessary to sort of play the Supreme Court politically for example, 
I don't know that this would have ended up making uh, a difference, you know, in, in the final tally. But Ruth Bader Ginsburg should have fucking retired when Obviously, Obama was yeah. president. And like a lot of people, I remember I was one of them, were thinking, yeah, you know, you should probably go now. Like we need to get, <laughs> you know, we need we need a best ch- we need our best chance of getting a justice, you know, from a from a dem- appointed by a Democratic president while we have one. And we didn't do that because the most important thing, I mean, you know, I I fucking hate all these people, but like the most important thing to this sort of class of people is it's about me. It's about my career, my long career of accomplishment, you know, blah, 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 whatever. My legacy. Rather Mm. than like, what are we actually doing here? Like, why, why does the president appoint justices to the Supreme Court? Why Supreme Court? Gee whiz, I don't know. And I think, I (laughs) wish I could, I wish I could credit this properly, but I remember when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, someone had said, you know, this, I know this sounds harsh, but the stated objective of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's life's work was to protect abortion rights. And she fucking failed. Nice legacy. And, and mm-hmm. she might have failed anyway. You know, like it, it might have failed anyway, but failure to properly comprehend, right, the, the political nature of the Supreme Court is, uh, is fucked up. Just as I think, you know, uh, failure to comprehend the political nature of, of scientific discourse, like scientific right. debate, <laughs> that's also fucked up and can lead to some pretty like messed up places. But you know, I don't think that the strategizing has been very smart. And I think it's because not only the Supreme Court is like bought into their to the myth of their sort of like legitimacy, their like oracular nature. But I think uh, the Democrats especially and kind of like the girl boss feminists are are bought into that as well and have been kind of clinging to this idea of like, like, well, we got Roe. And like, well, there's simply no way that we could ever go back. And it's like, well, yeah, there, there and is. there's nothing more to do. Also, that's what I mean. That's, yeah. you know, I think uh, not to beat that fucking horse over and over no, again. No, but we like, should that beat that horse more, until it's dead. Yeah. That there's like that that with Roe abortion is solved in America. <laughs> like, well, obviously not for the majority of these of these interlocutors. Again, these like girl bosses. It is. And yeah, what's going to happen people, is sure. they're going to overturn Roe. And and it'll still be solved for them mm-hmm. and it'll still be solved for them. And it's going to further entrench this sort of dual tiered access problem, right, where states with Republican controlled legislatures are essentially not going to be able to get abortions. And the people who write for, I don't know, what's like a blog, <laughs> the cut what's people a who blog? write. Yeah. People who write, you know, these like dumb feminist blogs they're still going to be able to get abortions and they're going to hand rent, right? Like the anguish is going to be rhetorical. Right. And that's, and and that's why, and that's why I think that like the, the Supreme court, like why is it the case that like, they're so, it was so obvious to everybody that like this, they're not going to go the, 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 the third way as it were on this, they're going to go hard and they're going to, you know, say the magic words that Roan Casey repealed. And then all the trigger laws in like 21 states are going to like go into effect and abortion is going to be outlawed in those states. Like, why is that so obvious? Because they're not expecting, they're really not expecting any sort of coordinated backlash that they, you know, they, they, they are comfortable in the fact that they have created a regime that they feel is pretty solid. And I think part of the reason why is exactly what you're saying, Abby, which is that their opponents 
do not treat politics as a passion, as a calling that is higher than that of a profession in which one draws a paycheck. Mm-hmm. And as long as that's the case, as long as it's the case so that, true. You, you know, your the the incentives you have is to play the game um, and to be a fighter um, in, in the arena rather than to really knock things, you know, back and to really create a political regime. Like the point is like the Supreme court does not exist to adjudicate one thing or another. It exists as part of a political regime. The question is what's it's, what is it for in the late 19th century for the Republican party, the Supreme court had one function and one function only. If you look at its cases, it was creating a national marketplace for the uh, carriage of goods like and, and, and mm-hmm. eroding state barriers to trade. That is the only thing the Republican Party cared about. That is what they used their Supreme Court for. And they knew right. it. Right. And then any sort of labor regulations that came along, they struck that down. That was what the court was for. Why? Because every single member of the court had been a railroad litigator. Uh, they, they had a great deal <laughs> surprise, of experience for this. Surprise, now, <laughs> What a parallel to our dystopian modern right. times. Yeah, right. hey, railroad law haunts the Constitution. We've fallen off the wagon since so Trump was elected. The, so, like, what did all of the conservative uh, justices do um, prior to being in uh, on the Supreme Court now? They were all, like... They weren't like railroad litigators. They didn't represent necessarily one particular sector of the economy. They represented this amalgam of like pure ideas uh, in the conservative legal movement. That's that they were like steeped in it. They were believing it by the time they were roughly like 23 or 24. Like they came into being in that way. And so now they don't have to like exist in the world. They, They exist in a realm of pure like ideas that happen to be really nicely meshed with the like squashing of the working class, but they mm-hmm. don't necessarily even have to see it as a class project or that way. You know, you know you're not going to get them to be transparent about that. But the point is like for like for liberals, what is the court? It's like, well, it's a plumb position that you get at the end of a very talented legal career. Yeah, what is it for? What is it for? <laughs> is it, is it for protecting rights and protecting uh, access to like necessary healthcare? Is it for building up the power of the working class? Is it for creating a different economic order? No, it's just a, it's just about like proving that you're smart and like building a cadre of smarties. Um, and yeah. you can tell because the people that roll off from being AG uh, or solicitor general, like Donald Verrilli and Neil Katyal, what do they do now? They're defending people who are like essentially slave traders uh, and the American Hospital Association. Like, good job, guys. That tells you everything you need to know about the quote unquote liberal legal movement in the United States. Well, and I think you're you're touching on something that I really I've been thinking about it all weekend and I'm not sure that I can articulate it in a way that is going to make sense. But yes, like there is this pervasive sense that this is all a game among like people who went to good schools and from the liberal side, I think it's like a really big problem that there seems to be a lot. I mean, you know, the Democrats have treated abortion like this radioactive issue for like a really long time. And I think that there is quite a lot of ambivalence among sort of these 
people who share these class interests, you know, these professional, Mm -hmm. like upper crust of the professional classes, there is a lot of ambivalence about what the real issue is here, which is sort of patriarchy, autonomy, and the family. And I think the liberal advocacy around reproductive rights has been so anemic because people are really ambivalent about, you know, it's it's actually not like a right that is engraved in stone that people have a right to get an abortion. And I think that a lot of these, uh, yeah, again, upper crust sort of liberal advocates really are ambivalent about people having truly like reproductive autonomy and people yeah. being able to exercise that autonomy so as to like, I I think it undermines patriarchy, right? Like when, when people can choose not to have families or like when people have control over their reproductive lives, I think that undermines like kind of the patriarchal social order. And I think even a lot of these like, you know, feminist advocates, when you're in like in these professional classes, you know, they actually they benefit to a large degree from those patriarchal structures. And I think that trying to carve out abortion as this like as this kind of abstract right that people should have sort of just because um, but not really touching on like what that means, you know, for for family structures and things like that explicitly or not being comfortable with an explicit challenge to patriarchal social norms, I think, has really like sapped a lot of the vitality out of this movement. But it also and it also plays in this domain of rights. Uh, which is, I mean, I think it should be very clear from from like the oral argument that like that is rights are not a thing that the Supreme Court has truck with that, that it is what they're doing is making policy. It's not about rights and what they're making policy to do explicitly is to criminalize being a poor person, period. Uh, and, and if you look at what's been happening already in states like Mississippi, People are being charged with murder for like having a stillbirth at home uh, or having somebody shoot them, shoot them in the stomach and then being sent to jail for being shot in the stomach and then, uh, you know, fine $50,000 or yeah, or miscarrying. Right. So it goes it goes even beyond just like the criminalization of abortion itself. It's the criminalization of of events that occur during a pregnancy and it's specifically targeted on working class people and making uh, working class people even more marginal members of society than they are. So it's a project that's explicitly about power. It's not about rights. I want to play. I have two clips actually, which relate to this. And I think relate to the thing I was saying before, which is the sort of, there are two sides to this idea of the court as a neutral arbiter line um and i wanted to actually kind of i thought it might be actually kind of instructive to contrast these really quickly just the first one i'll set this up i guess is kavanaugh um really interestingly actually it's almost like the there's this like quick slippage and it just kind of sounds like he's arguing on behalf of mississippi i think the other side would say that the core problem here is that the court uh, has been forced by the position you're taking and by the the cases to pick sides on uh, the most contentious social debate in American life and to do so in a situation where they say, 
that the Constitution is neutral on the question of abortion, the text and history, that the Constitution's neither pro-life nor pro-choice on the question of abortion. Uh, and they would say, therefore, it should be left to the people, to the states, um, or, or to Congress. Uh, and uh, I think mm. they also then continue, <laughs> because the Constitution is neutral, that this court should be scrupulously neutral on the question of abortion, neither pro-choice nor pro-life. But because they say the Constitution doesn't give us the authority, we should leave it to the states and we should be scrupulously neutral on the question. And that they are saying here, I think, that we should return to a position of neutrality uh, on that contentious social issue rather than continuing to pick sides on that issue. So I think that's, at a big-picture level, their argument. I want to give you a chance to respond to that. Yep, definitely not picking sides or anything. <laughs> Scrupulously neutral. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, part of the the mythology that we like to perpetuate in the United States, right, is that, like, Congress and government decisions may be driven by partisan politics, but that, like, at the end of the day, everything's neutral. Everything's, like, for the people and considering the people's opinions. And that's so far from the truth, as we talk about constantly. It's like, if you gave this decision to the states, do you think it is, like, the people who currently live in those states who would make <laughs> that decision or would have it? Right. Like, you know, <laughs> 70% of people in Wisconsin, like, want Medicaid expansion this you think the state's going to do anything about that? Like, absolutely not. Like, this is not a... And and ultimately, if they wanted to, like, vote new people in to make that decision, they couldn't do that either. Uh, so, I mean, this, this whole idea of just, like, we're going to let, like, democracy, like, decide presumes that that exists, uh, <laughs> right. which it doesn't. I um, feel like one side knows that this is a fiction and one side doesn't. Like... Right. I see this or, all the time in public health, you know, particularly around this sort of like liberal advocacy in public health for COVID related uh, things. I feel, you know, that the the right understands that all of this language is just window dressing, right? Because like they've been ruthlessly executing this like anti-democratic process for decades, you know? But I feel like the the liberal side is still taking those words at face value. And I think about this all the time with, with public health people who are like, well, science is a, is a scrupulously neutral uh, process and it's our job to just generate evidence right, right out of, out of a vacuum using statistical procedures that were definitely not developed as an adjunct of the political eugenics movement. It just drops out of the ether. Yeah. And uh, we're just going to hand them off to policymakers. And from there, it's going to go into, you know, the the perhaps complicated, but ultimately fair, you know, machinations of our legal system. And it'll probably all work out in the end. And it's like, okay, well, that's obviously not really how it works. And it's like, it's, it's wild that you don't know that. But I don't like over the weekend, I was watching preparing for this, I was watching some of the videos that Abolish Abortion Texas has posted on their oh website. Boy. <laughs> oh, God. oh, boy. Oh, God. And it's wild because they're interviewing these, I don't know, half-cocked legal experts that they have. And it's so obvious that they don't believe what they're saying, but it's their messaging is so calibrated 
to appeal to like an audience who understands things in these sort of like neutral legal terms. So they're saying things like, well, you know, like in their FAQ, they have videos about like, oh, well, would people that had had abortions in the past or no, would would people that had had abortions like isn't there isn't there the risk that people could be wrongly prosecuted, you know, for a miscarriage or something? And their answer, you know, they they call themselves abolitionists, but they seem to God. their answer is like, well, no, because the criminal legal system is is, is pretty good. You know, great. there's yeah. there's process, mm-hmm. there's checks built in. So, you know, it, there's there's no way that anyone would ever be wrongfully prosecuted. No one and, ever goes to jail for a bad reason. And mm. we and we know like we know that that's not their objective, right? Like it's right. very clear that their objective is to bring the weight of the criminal legal system to bear on people that have abortions and people that, that perform abortions. Um, and yet, you know, all of their messaging is like, well, no, like we have all these great processes. Um, you know, man's, they talk a lot about God's law versus man's law. Oh, boy. <laughs> and it's clear Ooh. that they believe God's law is, is supreme to man's law, but. Or a thing that exists or. Yeah. Or, or it doesn't change, you know, through interpretation of time, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but they're like, very sort of bought into sort of the, the procedural checks on the legal process rhetorically. I don't right. think that they, I don't think that they really are, but I think you know, the, the, the libs keep getting truly like suckered into being like, well, that sounds okay. Like, you know, that doesn't sound so bad. It's like, well, it couldn't be any more dehumanizing, but whatever. Right. And I think this sets up exactly this, like perfectly sets up actually exactly the second clip that I had to contrast this Kavanaugh comment because, well, I don't know. I'll just let, I'll just let uh Breyer speak for himself. I would <laughs> love for us all to drink in, this deeply weird <laughs> statement that arrives in the middle of a sort of long conversation that they have about sort of the idea of what it should take to undo very established precedents. <laughs> My third um, eye is clamped open like in yeah. a popcorn. Yeah. And in fact, the court said that in adopting the undue burden test, it was not disturbing the viability line. It's a very interesting question that I think Justice Barrett raised, too. It's usually just philosophical, but (laughs) I think it has bite here. Uh, When I read Casey, it's not just one-on-one, you know, two is greater than one. Casey plus Roe is greater than It's They're making a point that that we're an institution perhaps more than a court of appeals <laughs> or a district court. It's Hamilton's point. No purse. No sword. And uh, yet we have to have public support. And that comes primarily, says Casey. I wonder if it was O'Connor who wrote that. I don't know. Retire. But it comes primarily from people believing that we do our job. We use reason. We don't look to just what's popular. And that's where you're seeing the paradox. But the problem with the super case, of which we've heard three mentioned, the problem with the super case like this, the rare case, the watershed case, where people are really opposed on both sides and they really fight each other. 
is they're going to be ready to say, no, you're just political. You're just politicians. And that's what kills us as an American institution. Yeah, inshallah. That's what they're saying. So we're looking at it for that, but we are looking to. And that, they say, is a reason why. A reason why. When you get a case like that, you better be damn sure that the normal starry considerations, sorry to size this overruling, is, are really there in spades, double, triple, quadruple. And then they go through and show they must not. have quadruple okay? normality. <laughs> What's the paradox? Uh, maybe you think I've just made an argument that there isn't one. But really, in my head, I'm thinking I'm not sure there may be one. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I don't know if you've ever, if uh, when, when, when that occurred to you, I don't want to overrule the starry. I wouldn't want the court to overrule the starry decisive section of Casey. You say? <laughs> okay. Well, that's the last gasp of a dying institution. Yeah. You know? <laughs> you know, dying I don't know nation. if you ever thought about this, but uh, I don't know, you know. Normally, I don't pretend that this is a philosophy 101 class and I do my job, but I thought today what would be fun would be to contemplate the meaning of life and the Supreme Court and Man, if guys, life can exist without us. Wouldn't it be fucked up if we were a political institution all along? Oh, man. <laughs> but see, like, that's the irony. Like, they don't, like, Mississippi doesn't care. Right. It doesn't matter. No, they don't care. Uh, exactly. Like, it's, they, they're stipu- almost stipulating to that fact. The, and, and their point is, aha, and if you are a political institution, all the more reason to give it to us because we are already acknowledge that we're a political institution and what's going on here is politics, which, I mean, obviously, that is a menacing, um, you know, kind of uh, like admission. And it's very clear, like we know exactly what would happen. Like, and, and I think the other thing, too, is they get off on this idea that, like, we're returning it to politics, meaning uh, people can participate like in the state of Michigan. They have this like 19. First of all, the people who decided these laws, many of them are dead. Uh, it's right. it's the legislative majority in 1931 in Michigan that decided uh, about what the abortion law would be if like Roe were overturned. And then it's going to be like the 83 prosecutors in Michigan that decide how to how to, you know, um, uh, implement this law. And like that's ultimately where where this is like going to. And it's I mean, it's going to be, frankly, just like really disturbing, like what what you see. But but I think that there is a truth in the sense of you cannot delude yourself that everything that's going on here is politics. And if you're relying on the courts to defend anyone's right to anything and and realize and, and somehow making the uh, assumption that you don't have to, like, actually do mass politics to defend this thing. I mean, that is that to me is the real liberal sort of delusion, which is, is not to say that like courts haven't played some important role in advancing, uh, these rights, but the idea that somehow they are like the get out of jail free card where politics is concerned, that's the problem. Right. Right. No, exactly. And, and I think too, this whole, you know, this whole sort of game and tradition of the sort of quiet wink, wink, nudge, nudge. If you just make the legal argument, right. Like we'll do it. It's there is a kind of chummy relationship between like conservative members of the court and conservative activists, right? Like there is a kind of collaboration there that I think we can't discount, too, because I think 
one of the one of the real philosophical issues like i don't think that briar's really uh like on point when identifying like the the philosophical issue at the heart of this case i think one of the real issues here right is is essentially sort of do we want to have a society where the idea of like civil rights is a gotcha game right and that's not at all what they're talking about their priorities are completely elsewhere mm-hmm. right like their priorities are with their own legitimacy because I understand that that's because they are concerned about all of the prior cases that they've ever touched as an institution. But the fact of the matter is, like, it's it's a little too little too late after what's happened over the past 10 years, particularly with appointments. And beyond that, you know, some of the arguments that are used in a lot of these amicus briefs and... So one of the things that Scott Stewart actually says, like right ahead in his opening, is he talks about how nowhere else this court recognizes the right to end a human life. And that that kind of set alarm bells off in my head right away because of a very specific reason, which if you dig into the amicus briefs becomes obvious, which is the amicus briefs from a lot of the the organizations that are very like, I, what, what did you say? They call themselves like abortion abolitionists, Abby, like <laughs> yeah, these sort of, der- <laughs> yeah, these like sort of deranged, you know, pro-life organizations. Um, you know, there's even an amicus brief from the lawyer in the SB8 Texas case where they talk about this specific issue of how abortion rights conflict with disability rights. And they talk about selective abortions. And in the beginning, Stewart says, you know, the court does not recognize the right to end a life. And we have to protect all of these like disabled babies that are going to be selectively aborted if we allow abortion to continue. And it's it's like the kind of thing that I don't think you would notice unless you have spent like a lot of time digging on this topic, right? Because it's like, it's buried deep. And there are 140 amicus briefs for this case. Like the average case has 12, right? The inaccessibility to the average layperson for like understanding what is even going on in this conversation is through all of these layers of like well-financed and coordinated expertise. Because the people who are organizing this, who are arguing like, oh, you know, we got to eliminate all abortion to protect disabled people. It's not like all of them have this great background on disability that they're that they're using to try and make an argument that they care about. It's the same citation reproduced over and over and over and over again, right? It's like the most popular book on disability and law. It is the expert, like the expert on disability law and discrimination, Ruth Kolker, who they're citing here. Like they, they go through and they copy this argument in favor of like protecting children with Down syndrome And saying that the problem here is, you know, it's disability rights versus abortion rights towards this like horrible zero sum game. Right. And this is this is not like this is not something that I think that they have the balls to argue in full court, because I think that there are like large swaths of the disability community that would come for them. But I think to lay people, to people who are not disabled, who are not part of that community, like that argument has purchase. Right. And like. I don't think that anyone in the pro-abortion space is prepared for the complexity of the argument to push back against 
that selective abortion point, right? Like if we want any hope of, of retaining any of these rights that are given to us by these legal victories, right? Like we have to be prepared to make arguments in our defense. And I, I think the problem is, is that we're so caught up in playing this game of like, we're going to do it by the book. We're going to do it right. We're going to do it above board, which just doesn't work if the other the other side is playing this wink, wink, nudge, nudge game, right, where they're passing around useful citations to try and weaponize, you know, two vulnerable communities against each other, right? Like, without acknowledging the, the incredible complexity and ethics of, like, end of life, right to life, selective abortion, all of this stuff, like, it's not so cut and dry. But the the point of these conservative Christian, like, activists, right, is to make it really oversimplified, because in doing that, you know, they can try and get what they want, which is this blanket ability to sort of do what they want with gendered roles and with the labor force and with people's bodies and protect, you know, these perfect theoretical potential babies, right? Which they they ascribe all this personhood to the fetus, but that's not ever given to the person carrying the fetus, as we've talked about over and over and, you know, it's it's fascinating because so much of the discussion around disability and disability rights and disability personhood is also something that we've dictated to the courts, that Congress has passed the buck to the courts on, that we have seen most of our victories in the disability space as legal victories, right? And, mm -hmm. and it's incredibly insidious to keep these things in that register of this is grounds for legal authority. It's up to a judge to decide personhood. But like, as we talked about in the Britney Spears conservatorship case, this is actually foundationally, you know, one of the main legal principles of the United States that judges should decide who is competent. You know, judges should decide, you know, who is so disabled that they can't be executed. And the idea that that, you know, the Supreme Court hasn't weighed in on the, the right to end a human life is absurd. Right. But like textually speaking, I don't think that the American pro-abortion movement is prepared to push back right. on this right, new right, right. attack, which I think has always been a part of it. But like they're using this very ahistorical and selective view where they're like, you know, all abortion is eugenics. And, you know, we've got to protect the unborn fetuses because they're people, too. And as Christians, we recognize them as people. But like in colonial Massachusetts, in the first 200 years of the United States, in the context with which they wrote this goddamn constitution that that conservative activists always point to and saying, oh, well, history and tradition, you know, babies and fetuses weren't considered to be people. Right. So it's like it's all this like selective remembering and curation of what arguments you're going to use. And with like the other side, they're just caught up in like, oh, well, we've got to do this the right way. We've got to do this above board. And it's just like two people having two totally different conversations, having different fights, like passing each other. Right. Mm -hmm. And the collateral damage is the pregnant people at the end of the yep. day. It's the people yep, who yep, are yep. pregnant who don't want to be pregnant. It's a difficult conversation to weigh someone's desire to not be pregnant um, if they're choosing to have a selective abortion because they don't want to be pregnant because their child might be disabled. That's a really complex discussion, right? And that is something that ha that we should be talking about. But at the, at the end of the day, like what I think we're going to see is that really complex and nuanced situation and like the entire disability rights movement weaponized against the cause 
of abortion. And that really scares me. And and I think there's one other thing, which is there's also, I think, some ambivalence about what the like political strategy is in a post row kind of world, because, you know, make no mistake while the like Mississippi attorney general is like, well, no, we really think that like the states should decide and uh, that like we're going to like let different cultures like meet this out in different ways. And like, also we don't want to use this decision to like go harder on, on, on contraception or like make no mistake. Like there's an, they, they will not be satisfied with like the, 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 the Catholics, like the Thomas Beckett uh, society, like they, they will not be satisfied with like this win. They, they will want more. I'm terrified that they are going to find out that like, pr- it's hard to estimate for obvious reasons, but like a fifth of all conceptions are basically lost before they're recognized. And I'm really afraid that they're going to like figure that out. Yeah. I mean, they're, I mean, again, if you follow like the, their like line of thought, it doesn't end with like abortion. It's, it's all kinds of uh, activity, which is why you've seen like the criminalization of just like miscarriages in, in a lot of these States. But the, uh, you know, but the, the point is like, if you don't have a really coordinated both strategy to defend clinics that, that do exist, uh, but also to say, look, uh, this is not a decision that we think should be in the hands of the states. This is something important enough where we think that this is a right that should exist regardless of where you live in the United States, which, by the way, like this is this is something where we will become like part of a, you know, growing cadre of countries like Hungary, Poland, you know, like we're, we're joining a really elite squad uh, on, on doing this. But like, you know, I, I think it's going to be incumbent to say, no, the states actually don't get to do this. There's nothing that says that this has to be within their um, in their jurisdiction. Uh, Congress could easily uh, make the provision of abortion like the law of the land, but it's going to take like a fairly concerted form of mass politics that I think has not dominated this realm in many years. And I think that the absence of mass politics from this realm, this is my pitch for like, you know, um, quote unquote, like leftist TM uh, to like get involved on on this is that like, I think the absence of mass politics from this issue is what it has, is what has made it so like symbolic and like, like dealt with in these like philosophical terms, which have no bearing uh, or no relationship to the way that people actually experience uh, like healthcare in the United States. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's why, you know, if it's been a quote unquote, like losing issue or like not something that you want to like get out in front of as like a, you know, your, your standard issue, like Democrat in a uh, sort of like purple state. I think that's why uh, is because they just sort of like seeded the ground on, as like this is a philosophical moral debate rather than a real practical material one. I mean, I think it's also important to, note i think one of the long-term effects of this having been for decades i mean for my like my entire adult life having been you know a question of the courts and or you know the like the main liberal line is like uh if you want to defend abortion rights like go tell them at the ballot box Mm -hmm. or whatever right and with that being in mind not only to like you know quote unquote go tell them at the ballot box by like voting people in but by with the with the um, implication being voting people into office who then will work to get like the right alchemical mixture of Supreme Court justices 
in place in order to make it possible to like have abortion be a right or to have marginal gains on healthcare or Mm -hmm. some shit. And I think it's really important to, and I think it's really important to note that like there are so many different ways. Like I, I think fixing it on just the possibility within the courts ignores how many, like really the huge variety of different ways that this and so many other interrelated issues could be addressed, not least of which one of the things that we talk about literally all the fucking time on this show, which is something like Medicare for all, including abortion, right? Which would, which is like, I mean, in the original passage of Medicare, for example, like there was a concerted effort as part of that program, which included like a higher up of like a whole a whole uh, litany of people who were hired up basically to like monitor and rat out hospitals who were segregated to like actively desegregate hospitals right mm-hmm. these things are eminently possible they occur within living memory they are you know all of these things are political acts right and you know again something like medicare for all and ensuring that that means that literally every single last fucking person could get an abortion if they want to. Right. Right. Like, yes, the conversation is so limited. And I think people for some stupid fucking reason seem to be shy about the issue or some, or some garbage, but you know, it's eminently, this is eminently possible. Well, they've been told to be shy by democratic politicians who have portrayed it as like a contentious issue that they need in order to get elected. Or, right? who, like, or by people who <laughs> consider it a pet yeah, issue, exactly. including people on the left. But yeah, anyway, especially. So. Yeah. That's probably a good place to leave it for today. Um, I guess now, you know, we get to patiently wait for the Supreme Court to tell us how the rest of our lives are going to be once they get through um, their philosophical musings together. And uh patrons as always thank you so so much for supporting the show and don't forget to use code if you'd like to get a discount in the merch store if you want to help us out a little bit more share the show with your friends post about your favorite episodes or follow us at death panel underscore and uh, we'll catch you later in the week in the main feed as always medicare for all now solidarity forever stay alive another week
Content warning, Clarence Thomas. Shortly, some years after we decided Casey, uh, we had a case out of South Carolina, I believe, involved a woman who had been convicted of criminal child neglect because she ingested cocaine during pregnancy. Uh, In her case was post-viability. So it doesn't fit in the facts of this case. If she had ingested cocaine pre-viability and had the same negative consequences to her child, do you think the state had an interest in enforcing that law against her? 
The state may have, Your Honor. The state can certainly regulate to serve its interests in fetal life and in women's health. Those particular laws tend to undermine both of those interests because they deter women from seeking prenatal care, which is counterproductive to both their health. But the pre-viability as well as post-viability? No, Your Honor. The, the court has been clear that after viability, states can prohibit abortion except to save No, I mean, the, the in my example of criminal child neglect. I understand you. your argument is about abortion. I am trying to look at the issue of bodily autonomy and whether or not she has a right also to bodily autonomy in the case of ingesting uh, an illegal substance and causing harm to a pre-viability fetus. 